0: Good morning. Several years ago, uh, on a staff retreat, a bunch of us went golfing. I uh, My back was hurting, so I didn't golf. But while everybody else was warming up, I went and got, collected all the money, went in the pro shop, paid the greens fees, and rented a cart so that I could drive around with the other guys while they were golfing, and I could uh, kind of be a caddy on wheels. I'd drive over and let them get a club off of the cart, or Take them to their next shot. When they putted, I'd uh, park off of the uh, apron and sit there, watch the birds, and watch people on other fairways. It was a cool day, so I was wearing a sports coat. But it was a sunny day, and I was wearing uh, dark glasses. After a while, I began to notice that people were staring at us, staring at at the other guys while they were golfing. There were clumps of people on the side the golf course, looking like this, trying to figure out who these guys were. Finally, two uh, men walked up to me. Uh, they were uh, sheriff's deputies in plain clothes, asked me if I was carrying a gun. <laughs> they thought I was a bodyguard. And uh, one of these guys out there was my employer that I was watching over. And so they were trying to figure out who this famous person out there was, or maybe it was a drug lord or something. I should have stuck my hand in my pocket and said, who wants to know? <laughs> but I didn't. I just laughed and I said, Told them we were a bunch of pastors from Boise. <laughs> and I'm not real sure they bought that one. <laughs> but like I said, everybody was trying to figure out, they were standing around saying, Who is this? For the last uh, weeks, since so we've been going through the book of Luke, people have been asking the same question about Jesus Who is this? I mean, over and over throughout the book, people actually ask that question explicitly, very early, in the very first chapter that Jesus starts His ministry, chapter 4, He's teaching in a synagogue. When He finishes, everybody looks at each other and they say, Who is this? He speaks with authority. Even the demons obey Him. The next chapter, chapter 5, when Jesus heals the the man who was let down through the ceiling, the, the paralyzed man, says to the man, Your sins are forgiven. And immediately everybody asks, Who is this? that claims to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And the religious leaders become very uh, annoyed at Him. In fact, they start to oppose Him at this point when He demonstrates that He really does have that authority. Same thing that happens in chapter 7 when Jesus said to the woman who washed His feet with her tears, Your sins are forgiven. Immediately they asked, Who is this that even forgives sins? Chapter 8. The disciples really start asking that question. They're starting to, to... to get a little bit spooked by it, in fact. They've been watching Jesus uh, minister. They've been watching him heal people, cast out demons. They've been hearing the, the marvelous authority in his teaching. But when they're out on the boat and, and there's a storm and Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves, and the wind and the waves obey him, they are stunned. And they say to each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, they've seen a lot, but they still haven't quite grasped who this is. Chapter 9, the the chapter we're going to be looking at this morning. very beginning of the chapter, Herod's asking the same question. Who is this? See, all along, everyone's asking that question. Who is this? Quite honestly, this is the, the, the pivotal issue in the book of Luke. And this is the pivotal passage. This is the turning point in the book. All the way up to this point, that question has been thrown out. And the, 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 the events, the, the occasions that Luke records are intended to stimulate that question in us, to be saying to ourselves, who is this? Not only is that the pivotal question in this book, this is the pivotal question in your life. You look at Jesus and you ask the question, who is this? How you answer that question, who he is, determines the direction of your life. Cover story of uh, Christianity today, this last month, was who do the scholars say that I am? And the the article was about this group of uh, scholars that are known as the Jesus Seminar. They meet every other year to sit around and debate among themselves who Jesus was, what he said, what he didn't say. Some I read the article, and some of them were arguing that that uh, Jesus was an Eastern philosopher, like Confucius or Buddha. Some argued, actually, that he was a magician, that he was a, a trickster, a hoaxer. Some argued that he was a political revolutionary whose followers had made up all this these miracle stories in order to use him for their own political agenda. Not one of these guys, at least not in the article, was even open to the possibility that Jesus is who he says he is. You see, the question for you this morning is not who does our society say Jesus is. The question is, who do you say that Jesus is? So let's get into our passage. Luke 9, we're going to start at verse 18. Let me just read a couple of verses to get us into it. Luke 9, 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Okay, Jesus has been up praying by himself. My guess is he was asking the Father whether it was time to have this conversation with the disciples. Throughout the book of Luke, we see incidents where demons blurt out who Jesus really is. And every time Jesus quiets them, he silences them very abruptly. He rebukes them, tells them to be quiet. Because the disciples weren't ready for that information. They didn't understand what it meant. And it was premature to give them that information. But now as Jesus has been working with them, developing them, he he comes to the Father and says, is it time? Apparently it was time for the big talk. So Jesus says to them, now who do people say that I am? Immediately the disciples all crowd around him. They're happy to share what everybody's thinking. They're laughing to themselves. And one of them says, well, some people say that uh, you're John the Baptist. I mean, these disciples, many of them were John the Baptist followers. So they knew how silly, how absurd that idea was. But probably as you went in to buy your groceries right on the rack there, it was a big... Uh, National Enquirer with a picture of Jesus and a picture of John right next to each other and a big headline saying Jesus is really John the Baptist and people were buying this even though they lived at the same time probably a lot of them hadn't heard of Jesus until John disappeared was put in prison and and, uh, executed but even some who knew better were, were buying this story, it shows you how easily people accept the absurd when it comes to Jesus and who he is Uh, As I read that article on on the Jesus um, uh, seminar, some of the ideas were absolutely astoundingly silly. And people buy it. But anyway, some of them, they're sharing that some people thought this. Some people thought he was Elijah. Now, Elijah, this isn't a belief in reincarnation. Elijah never died. He went directly to heaven in a fiery chariot and we're told in Malachi 4 the very last chapter of the Bible in fact the very last couple of verses last two verses verses 4 and 5 or 5 and 6 of that chapter we're told that God will send Elijah back to usher in the day of the Lord that the, the Elijah would return to prepare for the Messiah even today in many Jewish homes as they celebrate the Passover a place is set at the table for Elijah in case he shows up at one point in the ceremony they'll go and open the front door, to let Elijah in, just in case he's finally come, bringing the Messiah. And finally, some people uh, were were saying, well, he's uh, one of the Old Testament prophets. Come back to life. Or maybe a prophet like one of the Old Testament prophets. See, God had been silent for 400 years, and people were saying, finally God is speaking again. Finally, God has sent us a prophet. Well, those people were close. God was speaking again, but this wasn't just a prophet. This was God himself, the Messiah. You see, the disciples were all crowding around sharing these things that people thought, and they were probably enjoying this. They are probably laughing to themselves at some of the things that people were saying. But Jesus, after he had asked them what others thought, looks up at them, and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I think immediately things got quiet. Got serious. This was no longer the, the comfortable conversation about what other people thought, what other people were saying. This was the very uncomfortable moment for declaring themselves. Peter steps forward and he says, You are the Christ of God. And there it's said, it's finally put into words. What a momentous, what a, a, a profound, overwhelming statement. They got it. That's right. That's who He is. And at this point, you'd expect the fanfare. You'd expect the fireworks. At this point, I'd expect Jesus to say, You got it. You finally figured it out. You put it together. Way to go, guys. But He doesn't. In fact, we're told that He... Sternly or strictly warns them not to tell anyone. The word he uses there for strictly warns is the word for rebuke. This is a very strong statement. It's the same word used of how he spoke to the demons. He told them very strictly, sternly, don't tell anyone. It's like they're in trouble. You see, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for this for some time. And even they, even still, they don't know what it means. What the implications are that He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. In fact, they figured that as soon as they said it, He'd tear off His robe with a big C on His chest and a red cape, fly up into the air and right all wrongs and throw off the oppression of Israel and everything would be wonderful and this is great. You see, they don't understand what it means. How could anybody else be ready for that kind of information? It's interesting, several years ago, a survey was done of religious knowledge in America. And one of the astounding things that they discovered was that a significant number of people in the United States actually think that Christ is Jesus' last name. You know, if you're going to mail him a letter, you write it to Jesus T. Christ. That is not his surname. Some of you aren't laughing because you're saying, it's not. <laughs> That's not His surname. That's His title. That's what He was. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. But what does that mean? What are the implications of that? So that's what Jesus needed to immediately begin teaching His disciples. So that's why He says in verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He says he's going to have to suffer many things. And then he goes to give some of the details of that suffering. He says the the high priests and the, the leaders and the, the thinkers and the teachers of his day are going to reject him. The word reject literally means to examine and declare useless. It was used of a of a pottery as it was being uh, comes out of the kiln. It was examined and looked at, and if it was too badly cracked or, or deformed, it was considered useless. It was thrown out and, and, and crushed. It was broken into to pot shards. And what he's saying is that, that that the leaders of his day, the teachers of his day, were going to examine him and find him useless, discard him for more important philosophies, for more important priorities. It's pretty much the same conclusion that people of our day, the leaders of our day have come to. Actually, it's the same conclusions people of every age have come to. And then Jesus also said, he told them very plainly that he would be killed and after three days rise again. Now realize what a blow this is to the disciples. Man, they had been looking forward to all their life to the Messiah. Now he's come and they expected him to throw off Roman rule, to get rid of the kind of the rich, exploitive, uh, controlling leadership class in Israel to start a new political kingdom that would rule the world. Where does this suffering and dying stuff fit in? In fact, in Mark's Gospel, we're told at this point, Peter rebuked Jesus. He said, Jesus, man, you got it all wrong. That's not the plan. Come on, you're scaring us with this nonsense. But that was the plan. And Peter and the disciples needed to learn that. You see, Jesus does not play by our rules. He does not conform to our understanding. The fact is, we need to learn His rules. We need to conform to His understanding. So He says, verse 23, Then He said to them all, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me this is what it really means to be a christian uh, that word christian is uh, so i don't know so misunderstood there's so many opinions about what it means these days it's almost a useless word i was talking uh, several months back to a gentleman and i somewhere in the conversation just to Said that I had become a Christian at some point in my life, and he was very offended by that. He was offended by that simple statement because somehow, to him, it felt like I was saying that if he hadn't had that same experience, he wasn't a Christian. Now, the fact is, this man did not believe in the Bible. He didn't believe in any afterlife. He thought religion was for weak people. But the mere implication that I thought he wasn't a Christian was very offensive. I was confused by this until I realized that to him, being a Christian meant that he was a nice guy. And to imply that he wasn't a Christian was to imply that he was a bad person. You see, the the, the concept of being a Christian means so many things to so many people. Some people, it means they've been baptized. Some people, it means they're part of an ethnic group. Others, it means they believe the Bible, or maybe that they go to church or or pray occasionally. Quite honestly, if you ask the majority of Americans, are you a Christian, they say yes. This passage kind of bypasses all those semantics. It cuts right through it. It says, here, we're not talking about, do you call yourself a Christian? He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wants to be a follower of Jesus, this is what is required. Let him deny himself. Now, he doesn't say let him hate himself. He doesn't say let him treat himself badly. Let him pour contempt on himself. He says deny himself. The word deny means to say no to. Betty Chaddock used to have a... Uh, Sign on the wall in her office. It said, "Know thyself." Know thyself. I thought that was a great sign. They realize that, that that denying yourself is more than saying no to that piece of chocolate or to one more cigarette. It's even more uh, than saying no to that temptation to cheat on your wife or on your income taxes. Denying yourself means saying no. To, to an entire way of life, a way of thinking, a way of being. It's saying no to uh, the, the desire, the compulsion to control your own life. It's saying no to, to the way things seem, to the way things feel to you. It's saying no to those things in your life that, that, that feel like they're going to give you... Peace and joy and satisfaction apart from christ apart from jesus it's saying no to the natural tendency to protect and preserve your reputation and your pride and and your interests your very life the next step is to take up your cross daily in the first century a cross wasn't a pretty little ornament that you wear around your neck or put on some earrings the cross was an ugly reminder of death. When someone picked up their cross, they were on their way to die. Their life was over. The only thing left was the painful process of dying. They were dead men walking. They no longer uh, went to work. They no longer went fishing, boating, hunting. They no longer sat down to a good meal or played with their kids. They were Dead. Now, often people will talk about having a cross to bear, referring to their mother-in-law or to the fact that they have allergies. But a cross was not a minor irritation. It was the end. It was over. Every day we're to pick up this reminder that we are dead. And then the third step was following him. Continuing to follow Him. The, the, the game follow the leader is a good one here. It means following Him. Doing what you see Him do. Obeying what He says. Assuming His outlook on life. Adopting His approach to people, to situations. And Jesus tells us right up front that if you live that way, it's going to involve hurt and pain and rejection. Eventually, death. It's going to be humiliating. Suffering. So to come after Jesus means abandoning control of our our future, of our lives. Abandoning the way things seem to us. Our way of thinking. Abandoning our dreams and schemes and plans for the future. Viewing ourselves as dead. That it's all over with. There's nothing left to lose. Then in that uh, attitude... Following him to pain and hurt and death. Such a deal. Who wants that? How could we possibly have ears to hear this stuff? How could we have hearts that would open to this? That's not attractive. Well, Jesus explains, verse 24. Here he gives us the key to understanding following him. He gives us the key to understanding him and his attitudes and and his behavior. This is the key to understanding spiritual life, I think. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me shall save it. Now get a grip on this and I think you've got spiritual truth wired you live by dying you die if you try to live you get by giving if you try to hold on to what you got you lose it you lead by serving you, 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 you're exalted by humbling yourself if you if you exalt yourself you'll be brought low you stand tall by kneeling See, that's the way it works. That is reality. And that's what God teaches us. But it seems so contradictory. It feels so wrong. Even the way I I describe it is in the form of contradictions. See, that's why we need to to deny ourselves. Because unless we stop trusting the way things seem to us, the way things feel to us, our own logic, our own figuring. Unless we trust Jesus more than that and say no to what seems right to us, what feels good to us, what's logical to us, and say yes to what He says. If, unless we do that, we will never follow Him. And we will never find life life is what Jesus wants for us. But He knows the only way for us to get it is to follow Him to death. He calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow Him, not because He wants for us the pain, but because He knows the joy on the other side of the pain. That's why He did it Himself. Hebrews two or 12, 2 says, Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus didn't go through the pain for nothing. Didn't do it because He liked pain. He did it because that was the only way to get the joy of saving us. Jesus went through the suffering, the shame, not because He didn't want glory, but because that was the way to glory. See, Jesus... Does not call us to a permanent grave. He calls us to a temporary grave and a permanent life. Woman does not endure the pain of childbirth because she likes pain. She does it because she loves the child and wants the joy of that child. Is it wrong to want to be respected? Is it wrong to want glory? Is it wrong to want rest and peace and praise and and, and, uh, freedom? No. These are things God offers us, but only as byproducts of following Him. When we go after these things in themselves as our focus and our our human limitation and folly, we lose them all. If I want the respect of others and I'm, I'm willing to compromise myself to get it. I lose my self-respect, and there's no other respect that will satisfy. But if I die to that need for respect for others, and do what is right, and follow Christ, no matter how foolish it seems to other people, no matter how damaging to my reputation, then I will respect myself. And ultimately, either in this life, or when Christ comes again, others will respect me for having lived the truth. If I uh, go into my marriage seeking love from my wife, seeking her to meet all my needs and to make me secure and to give me everything I need, chances are I'm going to suffocate my wife and I'm going to drive her away by my clutching and grabbing. But if I walk into that marriage dying to my needs, committed to loving my wife in Christ's strength and, and, and according to His instructions then I enjoy the pleasure, the, 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 the love of my Lord, and quite probably, though not necessarily, will enjoy my wife's love as well. If I seek security in a job, satisfaction will always be just around the corner, just beyond reach, extracting a little bit more of my time, a little bit more of my soul. But if I die to that and seek security only in God and do my job to the best of my ability for His glory as unto the Lord, then I'm going to find satisfaction and joy in any job, no matter how much drudgery is there. If I uh, seek a positive self-image by trying to convince myself how okay I am, how alright I am, and denying my sin, I'm going to be miserable. It's going to destroy me, forcing me to, to self-deception and to resent others whose words or whose life point out my sin, my lack of love. But if I die to that, and I open myself to face my sin, to, to, to listen when God shows me how I've compromised love in my life, every time, to let that break my heart, bring me to repentance, confess it, then He cleanses me. He forgives me. And I do have a positive, healthy self-image based on reality that I stand righteous before Him. If I seek rest by pushing from my sight the needs of my family or, or my friends or others, to, to, to try to force my rest, I'll end up unhappy, frustrated, all the more tired. But if I die to my needs and choose to love in His strength, my soul is renewed. And I discover times of rest that are set aside for me by my loving Heavenly Father. If I try to gain my freedom and clutch my freedom by throwing off the control of my parents if I'm a child or by throwing off the constraints of truth as an adult, then I will end up a miserable slave to sin. But if I die to freedom and submit myself to my Lord's instructions, then I will know the truth and the truth will make me free and I'll find a kind of freedom that I never even knew existed. If I hold on to my money, because what's mine is mine, and I need it for my pleasure and for my security, what will happen is either that money will dry up and blow away, and I won't have it, or I'll have it. But the joy is gone. The security never materializes. But if I die to that control and I give my money entirely to God to be used by Him to provide for and love my family and my church and the people around me, then either He will multiply that or at least I will have enjoyed it and know that He will take care of my needs. You see, that is the way things work. While dying to my, my quest for personal glory and seeking to glorify my Lord, I receive unimaginable glory. Dying to my my, my desire for peace, my quest for peace, I gain unspeakable peace. By dying to my compulsion to justify justify myself, I am justified. Dying to uh, riches, I gain unlimited wealth. Dying to rest, I mount up on wings like eagles. Dying to future... I gain a future and a hope. That is the way it works. That is the way of the cross. That is a terrifying way. It's a painful way. It hurts to not be respected. It hurts to love and not be loved. It is scary to give up my security and my money. It is scary to give up my living for my job. Because that's what the Lord calls me to do but that is the way of the cross ultimately it's the only way hard part is believing this when it just feels so contradictory and when everybody around us is living contrary to that and it makes it seem so silly so foolish we want to trust god we want to believe him but it's so hard reminds me of a story of a man fell off a cliff the grand canyon as he slid off the last of the precipice, 200 feet down, he grabs a hold of this little bush. And he's hanging there and his feet are dangling. And he cries out to heaven, is anybody up there? His voice from the clouds said, yes, I'm here. What would you have me to do for you? And he yells, save me, Lord. The voice says, all right, do you trust me? Said, oh, yes, Lord, I trust you. Okay, then let go and I'll take care of you. The man looks down, thinks about it for a couple of seconds and shouts out, Is anybody else up there? (laughs) It is hard. Because the ways of God do seem like foolishness to man. And he does call on us to let go. If you refuse, you lose. That's what the next verses tell us. Let me read verse 24 again, 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Let's say you you shine all this on. You go for all you can get out of this world. You you look for security in your job and for peace in your recreation. You look for, for wealth and fame. And let's say you do it. You get it. You're rich. You're powerful. There's still two things you got to deal with. One, you lose your soul. You lose what he calls here your very life. It's the same word. It speaks of your inner life, your heart, where your emotions and feelings and, and where your quality of life is determined. You lose it. There's no satisfaction. There's no peace. There's no security or joy. And think of, uh, of the misery... So many of the rich, powerful. I think of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament who ruled the world went insane. I remember reading when, uh, of Howard Hughes when he died. Just the incredible wealth. that he died a, a terrified, reckless. See, these things that we pursue cannot give us our soul. It can't meet our needs. You can't gain freedom from a lie. Then beyond that. What good will any of this do you in the next life? This life is very short. You really can't take it with you. Is anything worth that risk? Verse 26, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. You see, you can't have it both ways. You can't play games here. There are two roads in front of you. One road is wide and well lit and seems to lead up to the stars. And that road's crowded with smiling people, rich, beautiful people. And over that road, there's a big sign that says, Life. And off. The other direction is a narrow, dimly lit path leading down into the darkness. And it's empty except for one man. The man who calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. That doesn't matter whether you call yourself a Christian or not. That's the choice. That's what it all boils down to. Choose your way. The Old Testament Told that Abraham was called by God to follow him from his wealthy home in Ur. As Abraham looked out, he saw nothing good out there, nothing attractive, but he believed God and he left Ur. He followed God. He believed God, and we're told in Romans that when he believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. See, that's what's in front of you a choice to believe, to trust Him. To follow Him, even though it doesn't look all that good. You can't see what's out there, what's down there. That's what faith is. To believe Him. And if you believe Him, it will be accredited to you as righteousness. But you've got to choose. If you choose, He'll supply what's needed. He, we are reborn. We, 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 we receive His life. A life in us that enables us to understand and to obey. But your part is to choose. I want to come back to this, but I want to read the next story just to drive this point home. This next story is called The Transfiguration. Starting verse 28. I'm going to read right through it. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John and James with him and went onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw him, excuse me, they saw his glory, and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to them, Master, It's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Now look what happened. Peter and James and John are up on the mountain. Jesus is praying. They're starting to doze off. And suddenly they're getting blinded by something. And they wake up and they see Jesus glowing like lightning. And they see him talking with two men. And I don't know how they recognize them. But somehow they know this is Moses and Elijah. You've got to realize what this would mean to a Jew. Moses and Elijah, these are the greatest of the great. Moses is the lawgiver. He wrote more of our Bibles than any other person. Moses is the greatest Old Testament character ever. And Elijah is the greatest of the prophets. I mean, these are the top, the, 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 the very epitome, the pinnacle of the Old Testament. And these guys are talking with Jesus. Boy, the disciples are excited. And that must mean that Jesus is up there in their league. They're impressed. Peter, who always seems to speak when he's scared, says, hey, this is great. This is fantastic. I got a great plan. Okay, James and John and me will be your servants. And we'll start setting things up here. We'll, we'll, we'll build, start by building shelters. And this will become the place where, from which we rule the world. You know, the the big guns are here. It's time to start world conquest. And everybody will come here to, to, to get the truth. This is phenomenal. This is working out great, Jesus. And then while he's speaking, a cloud comes down. Begins to cover them. God often shows up in a cloud. The, the Shekinah of the wilderness. And out of the cloud, a voice comes you see the disciples were impressed at being with Moses and Elijah Moses and Elijah were impressed at being with Jesus the disciples had grown used to it accustomed casual about being with Jesus because they still didn't grasp who he is remember we started Jesus asked who do men say that I am then He turns to the disciples and says, Who do you say that I am? Well, now we get the ultimate answer. Now we get the authority. God the Father says who He is. This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. And it couldn't be clearer. Jesus is the unique Son of God. Not just one of the Prophets like Moses and Elijah. And the Father has chosen His Son to be Lord of all. Not one of these others. And the directive, the the, the, the instruction, the command of the God of the universe is listen to Him. Follow Him. This is what it all boils down to. Do you believe God or don't you? Will you obey the God who created you or won't you? His command is clear. Listen to Jesus. Follow Him. Trust Him. In Him is life and there is no other. Follow Jesus. Jesus said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Let's pray. Would you take just a second? Quietly consider who do you say that he is? Is he the unique Son of God? Is he the Messiah? Is He someone who can be trusted enough to walk to death, to give it all up for? I'm just going to give you about 30 seconds for you to answer that question in your heart. Who do you say that He is? Jesus, I confess that You are the Lord. You are the Messiah. You are the Holy Son of God. You are my creator. You designed me to be in fellowship with you. You designed me to have your spirit in me, to walk according to the truth rather than according to my perception. You know the power of our flesh, how hard it is to ignore what our eyes are seeing and to listen to you how hard it is to ignore what feels so powerful and so strong and to believe you. But Lord, we do want to follow you. By your Spirit, give us life. Give us rebirth so that we can see, so that we can believe, so that we can follow you to death, that we might live with you. Just pray for each person here, for those who have made that choice to follow you. Just renew that in them, for those who have never yet confronted them. Lord, use this as a time to open their eyes to the, the paths before them. Give them the wisdom to trust you and to choose life indeed, rather than the promises the lies of the world just pray this in your name amen